0: Wonderful. So we um, continue through Colossians chapter 3, and uh, today we are talking about marriage. Now, depending on where you're at in life, I'm guessing that word has created various internal reactions going around this auditorium uh, wives are probably nudging their husbands right now to pay attention and uh, husbands are also hoping that their wives will pay attention maybe some of the singles are going oh should have gone fishing uh, or sun tanning um, but hopefully some of you are thinking no 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 i want to get married one day what do i need to know what do i need to be aware of But then there's also another group uh, that I want to be sensitive to or as sensitive as I can be to. And where the word marriage for you doesn't bring uh, very happy thoughts or feelings, maybe it brings a lot of pain, a lot of hurt, maybe a lot of confusion because of a a past marriage experience or a current uh, marriage uh, experience. And then I thought, well, what if we had to ask the world out there what they thought about marriage? What would be be the different opinions and thoughts and feelings that the world has regarding marriage? Well, comedian Chris Rock, he says this. Do you want to be single and lonely or married and bored? (laughs) Although, as a comedian, it's not really funny. But uh, he does seem to have his finger on the pulse of our current culture. Because stats tell us that this is what our younger generation is thinking. This is what they're thinking. These are their two options. So it's not to be single and lonely, and so it's not to be married and bored, what stats tell us is that there's been a surge in living together. There's been a surge, in, to use their language, in, co- in cohabitation. And so their thinking is, well, if I just live with someone, then my my sexual desires are satisfied, but um, the back door is always open, my options are always open, so if it doesn't work out, I then escape the pain and the stigma of divorce. And I'm thinking, really? Have you asked, asked someone who has lived together and it hasn't worked out, have you asked them if it wasn't painful? if it wasn't complicated? I mean, who gets to stay, who gets to go, who gets to take this, who gets to keep this, And if there are children involved? So in the world, marriage has a negative stigma. Stats tell us that marriage is on the decline and living together is increasing. And so I'm thinking, well, where does that leave us? Where does that leave us as Christians who are married or who want to get married? And I believe it gives us an incredible opportunity to redeem marriage in the world's eyes. Because here's what I'm proposing this morning. Every Christian marriage can be new. Every Christian marriage can be transformed in Christ by taking up a few requirements, by taking up a few responsibilities. And so the little disclaimer this morning is you can't take on these responsibilities, you can't take up these requirements unless... According to the context of Colossians 3, remember verse 1 says, unless you have been raised with Christ, Paul starts off with. He then says, then you are enabled or empowered to then do the rest of what Colossians 3 is saying. But without that, we can't take up these responsibilities. And so have a look now, as he moves on to marriage, what our responsibilities are. So Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 to 19, just, just two verses, they go like this. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So to have a new marriage, to have a transformed or a transforming marriage in Christ requires two things. Christ-like submission and Christ-like love. You'll see that on the flip side of your, of your bulletins. So point number one. To have a Christ-like marriage means Christ-like submission. So there it is, ladies. There is the S word. Um, but now to understand what submission means in a biblical or a Christian marriage, we need to understand what it means in the larger biblical context first. For instance... Jesus himself displayed or he lived out the biblical doctrine of submission, even though he, was, he is co-equal or co-eternal with the Father, yet he submitted to the Father's will. I remember Jesus' agonizing prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Just before he is arrested, he says this, Luke uh, chapter 22, verse 42, he says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. In other words, what he's about to go through, his arrest and his crucifixion. But he says, nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. Notice, it's a voluntary submission. Then again, in in John 14, 26, the Father, what we see is the Father sends or the Father commissions the Holy Spirit to come. And then Jesus tells his disciples that the Holy Spirit will come and he will remind you of everything I have taught you. He will remind you of everything that Jesus has said. Later on, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will glorify him. And so again, the Holy Spirit, co-eternal, co-equal with the Father and the Son, submits to both of them. And so in all circumstances, for all uh, eternity, submission within the Godhead, our Trinitarian God, has always been one or hasn't been one of of force or coercion, but of mutual respect, mutual love and joy. And then we're told that as the church, as the body of Christ, we collectively are to submit to the head of the church, who is Jesus. Jesus. That is, male and female, we are to submit to the head of the church, Jesus himself. And then uh, the next level is husbands are told specifically, you are to submit. We are to submit to Jesus. And then most people think, well, then we arrive at wives submitting to their husbands. But there's one more level of submission that is often overlooked. And therefore, the reason why there's so much misunderstanding about this doctrine so Paul doesn't put it in our Colossians texture. He slips it into the parallel passage on marriage in Ephesians five. So have a look at this, Ephesians five, from from verse eighteen, just to get a bit of context. He says this: "But be filled with the Spirit." Okay, that is huge. That is foundational. What he's about to tell us, the rest of this paragraph is going to show us what being filled with the Spirit looks like. So he says. Be filled with the Spirit. Here we go. Number one, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Number two, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then number three, he says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Being filled with the Spirit enables us to be submitted or to submit to one another. And then the very next verse, in Ephesians 5, Paul launches into marriage. But submitting to one another speaks of a mutual respect. It speaks of a mutual love, a mutual valuing of each other. And that includes marriage. It includes husbands and wives to have a mutual respect. But the key... You cannot do this, Paul is saying, unless you are filled with the Spirit, because the Spirit will empower you. Tim Keller, he says it like this. He says, it is a loss of pride, talking about submission, it is a loss of pride and self-will that leads a person to humbly serve others. From the Spirit-empowered submission of verse 21, Paul moves to the duties of wives and husbands. And again, jumping back into our context in Colossians 3, Paul says in Colossians 3, verse 1, if you have been raised with Christ, only then can you fulfill this. So with that in mind, have a look at verse 18 again. He says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Okay, so we've got our broader context. We know that this is a submission is a biblical doctrine all the way from the trinity down to the church down to us individually and now down to our marriage it affects every single one of us but the question we want to ask now is what does it look like specifically for wives in the context of marriage and so yes the word submission does mean to to come under authority but it doesn't mean to come under authority because wives are of an inferior sex But on the contrary, both man and woman, the Bible is very, very clear that both man and woman are created equally in God's image and likeness. Furthermore, Galatians 3.28, have a look at this, says this, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He's saying through faith in Jesus, there is no superior race. There is no superior ethnic group over another. There is no superior sex over another. You have, we have been united in Christ. And therefore, submission to a husband has nothing to do with the intrinsic value of a woman. It has to do with role. It has to do with function. Tony Evans says this. He says a wife's submission has to do with function. Not value. Just as Jesus Christ is functionally subordinate to the Father, yet equal with the Father, so a wife is functionally subordinate to a husband, yet equal to him. So the first thing we need to realize is submission is a role, not a value, not an identity. Secondly, notice this. This command is to women, the command is to wives, it's not to husbands. Husbands, it's not our job to get our wives to submit. It's up to the wife to voluntarily submit herself to her husband. A more literal translation would say this, wives, subject yourselves to your husbands. The responsibility is squarely on you. Husbands, don't you dare get involved in this part. And then there's one other pretty simple observation that we need to look at before we move on to the concerns and that is this notice wives that you are to submit to your husband no one else's no other man you are to voluntarily and faithfully come under the leadership of your husband and your husband alone but now what are some of the concerns and some of the questions that we have around this doctrine of submission. The first concern is this. Wasn't this just simply an ancient first century cultural thing? I mean, come on, we're living in the 21st century culture. This this is no longer relevant. Well, if we apply that thinking to this text, then we also have to include the next part of husband's commanded to love their wives and not be harsh with them. If submitting to a husband was simply and purely a first century thing, then so was the requirement of husbands to love their wives. Because after all, it's part of the same context, part of the same argument, part of the same era. So we need to be careful in in picking and choosing what we think is exclusive to a particular day and age. But you are right in that there are certain things in Scripture that are exclusive to a particular day and age, but usually the context of the passage tells us so. But I'm going to show you in a second why this isn't one of those. So what Paul is actually telling us here is that there was a problem in his particular culture. Because listen to this, compared to to Scripture, there will always be a problem with a particular culture, no matter which day and age that you're living in. We never take our authority, we never take our cue from culture, but always from the Bible. And so Paul gives this command here, but he he gives it to redeem what was happening in his day and age, and I believe also redeem what is happening in our day and age. But let me first tell you what was happening back then. William Barclay, a famous Scottish theologian, He documents this. He says, under Jewish law, a woman was a thing. She was the possession of her husband just as much as his house or his flocks or his material goods were. She had no legal right whatever. For instance, under Jewish law, a husband could divorce his wife for any cause, while a wife had no rights whatever in the initiation of divorce. Then he flips over to the Greek society within that first century culture. He says this, In Greek society, a respectable woman lived in a life of, a, of entire seclusion. She never appeared on the streets alone, not even to go marketing, not even to go buying and selling. She lived in the women's apartments and did not join her menfolk even for meals. From her, there was demanded a complete servitude and chastity, but her husband could go out as much as he chose and could enter into as many relationships outside marriage as he liked and incur no stigma. He concludes and says, Both under Jewish and under Greek laws and custom, all the privileges belong to the husband and all the duties to the wife. That was what submission looked like in Paul's day and age, in the first century context. That, to me, is not submission. That, to me, is simply oppression and downright abuse. And so Paul knows that, and God knows it. And so, inspired by God, Paul, what he does is redeem submission biblically and according to Christ. Here's how he does it. Look at verse 18 again. He says, Wives... Submit to your husbands, but now he puts a comma. And so he now answers, answers the question, well, how, Paul? How? What parameters? In other words, what is the guarding or the governing authority by which wives are to submit to their husbands? He tells us, as is fitting in the Lord. Not as is fitting according to your first century culture or as your 21st century culture I mean, who actually knows what is happening in our current 21st century culture? I mean, it's so confusing. I mean, I, I, they, they say things like, you know, if you don't want to be associated or identified as a woman anymore, then you don't have to. Or if you don't want to be a man anymore, you don't want to be identified as a man anymore, then you don't, you don't have to be either. And I'm thinking, well, what does it mean? I, I was sitting a couple of months ago in the, in the doctor's room with, with Janine and we, you know, we're filling out that form that says, you know, name and then address. And then it gets to six, male or female. And you've got to tick the box. And I leaned over to her and I said, oh, they can't do that anymore. In the 21st century culture, you have to put other. And then I'm thinking of the poor doctor. If, you, if I had to like, tick other, what would he do? Like, do I treat you as a male or female? I don't know how to treat you as a, another or an other. But anyway, that's, that's another whole sermon on its own. <laughs> Many people have abused this particular phrase in how they've interpreted it. The first wrong interpretation is to say, you see, wives must submit to their husbands just like they submit to the Lord. In no place in Scripture does it ever say that we are to submit to another person to that extent. I mean, there are limits to the extent that your employer can expect of you. There are limits to the extent the government can expect of you. In no place in the Bible does it teach that we are to submit to another human or another institution with the same unconditional, without exception, submission than to God Himself. I mean, can you imagine? Your husband cannot ask you to sin. He cannot ask you to rob a bank with him. Why? Because your submission to him is determined by what is fitting in the Lord. The second incorrect interpretation is more of a reaction to the first misinterpretation. That is, wives say, "Well, I'll only submit to my husband when he acts like the Lord, when he makes decisions like the Lord. Then I will submit to him." Wives, you're going to be waiting a long time <laughs> before that happens. But I mean, as Christian husbands, right? We, we by, by God's grace, we want to, we want to. Put off our old sinful self. And we want to put on the new self created in the image and likeness of Jesus. But as we've been saying over the last few weeks, it's a process. It's a growth, but it's a process nonetheless. And so I think the best way to understand that phrase is as a disposition of the heart. If you're going to submit to your husbands as is fitting of the Lord, that means first and foremost... Submitting to the Lord himself in a loving, intimate relationship. Because wives, that is what's going to change your heart. That is what's going to affect your heart and that in turn will affect your relationship with your husband. Not to embarrass my wife, who's not here, unfortunately. She's at home with Emma, who is sick. But out of the two of us, she's the real go-getter. She, In fact, she's way more talented than me in most areas in life. You know, I'm, I'm more like the dreamer. You know, I say things like, hey, imagine going to pastor a church on a tropical island and swim with turtles every day. You know, and, and next minute, the house is sold, the contents of the house is sold, the tickets are bought, bags are packed, and we're good to go. And I'm thinking, wow. I mean, she, she's just, she, whatever I, you know, I, I dream she does it. I'm like, it's, it's incredible. And she also gives up her promising career. But here's the secret us the secret out of her love and submission to jesus first and foremost flows a grace flows a respect and a lot of patience towards me the other thing that might help you ladies is to ask yourself this question do you trust jesus Do you trust Jesus even though He inspired the writing of this command? Do you trust Him that He will always tell us to do things, first and foremost for His glory and secondly for our good? Do you trust that He created you equally in His image and His likeness and He wants you to thrive? He will never ask you to do something that will oppress you but rather make you thrive, give you peace, give you joy. And finally, a quick word to the Christian single ladies. Ladies who, who genuinely love Jesus, who are genuinely trying to put off their old sinful self, like Paul has been saying, put on the new self. And as Paul has been saying in Ephesians 5, filled with the spirit so that you are being enabled to, to fulfill this command one day. Can you see why it is so vitally, vitally important that you prayerfully and carefully decide who you marry? Because either he will make this a living hell for you or a place of safety, security, love, peace, joy, where you can thrive as a person. So that's point number one. To have a transformed marriage requires Christ-like submission. Now let me shout at the men. A Christ-like marriage requires Christ-like love. Paul says it like this. Husbands, verse 19, love your wife. So right off the bat, before we even dive into this thing, husbands, can you see that you are to love your wife? Not someone else's wife. Not some other woman. You are to love your your wife and you are to love her more than fishing more than golf more than your job more than your children and do not be harsh with them so apparently, according to Paul, who was divinely inspired, we were only capable of remembering two things. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies, yours is way more involved than multifaceted and multilayered, but Paul knows, okay, men, we need to keep it clear, we need to keep it simple. One positive command, one negative command, like a car battery. Ladies, this helps us. Any illustration regarding a a car helps us understand things. Okay? So like a car battery, guys. First, the positive. Husbands, love your wives. Then the negative. Do not be harsh with them. But before we can even understand clearly what those commands mean, what they should look like in our lives, what Paul is inferring here is, husbands, if you do these two things, you are providing an environment where your wife can thrive in submitting to you. You are providing a safe and trusted place for her. And so suddenly those two commands don't seem so simple anymore. But rather, I hope we feel the weight of them. For the sake of God's glory, for the sake of our wives, our marriage, our children, our family life. So, number one, what does it mean to love our wives? Firstly, it was completely countercultural. If Paul took his cue, if he took his authority from his current culture, he would say something like this wives, submit to your husbands, and husbands rule over your wives. Because remember, his his context was that wives were just simply objects, they were just simply pieces of the property of the husband. The husband, there was no requirement on him to love his wife, to love woman. And so, Paul, commanding husbands to love their wives, was completely countercultural. So, what type of love are we talking about here? Unfortunately, ladies, the love that Paul is talking about is not a romantic, emotional love. But now, don't get me wrong, romantic love is vitally, vitally important, but it's a love that can dwindle. It's a love that can, that can weaken and, and wane. But let me, let me put it this way. Guys, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. The only requirement to fall in love is a set of eyes. Right? The only requirement for you to fall in love is a pair of eyes. That's what happened to me. I saw Janine. Boom. I'm in love. And it's that kind of love, that that love that that drives you to do crazy things. Like I flew from South Africa all the way to Taiwan to my girlfriend, who is now my wife, by the way, uh, who was teaching English. She'd been teaching English there for a year. And I arrived and I said, okay, pack your bags. Let's go home so we can get married. Some of you, maybe, you know, you've driven all night, all through the night, with a bunch of roses to your girlfriend at her new university, and, you know, give her the rose, and you drive all the way back home in time for for work. Or, you know, you kind of stay up all night, staring at the stars and, and chatting away. And so romantic love is exciting. It's wonderful. You should have it. But it's largely a selfish love. Here's what I mean by that. It's more about how the other person makes you feel, which leads you to do all of these crazy romantic things. When that person no longer makes you feel the way you used to feel, you no longer do the things you used to do. And then this is when the past tense accusations start coming out. Why don't you do that anymore? You used to be so fun. You used to be so spontaneous. You don't make me feel the way you used to make me feel. And then what happens? Then we just simply drift through life, or the kids become the central focus of our marriage, or we have affairs, or we get divorced. So stats tell us that this romantic love can remain up to two years in a relationship before it begins to wane, before it begins to dwindle. And why is that? We get used to each other. We get used to how each other looks, how each other does things, how each other feels. And so what kind of love do we need to stay in love, to stay in our marriages? And so the love Paul is talking about here is agape love. In fact, it's the verb form of agape love. And you'll remember from our school days that a verb is a doing word. It's an action-orientated word. So it can literally be translated, husbands, keep on loving your wives. Keep on loving them with this unconditional, benevolent love. That's what a God-pay love is. And so it immediately implies more of a decision oriented type of love as opposed to this romantic, emotional love. Let me tell you a little secret to getting those feelings again. The more you make this decision to love your wife, to do things, to, to do loving things for your wife, it sparks those loving, romantic feelings. But David Gerzik, he defines the god love like this. He says, It is a love that loves without changing. So it's consistent. He says, It is a self-giving love that gives without demanding or expecting repayment. In other words, it's unconditional. It's not like a contract. I will do this. If you do that, sign on the dotted line. If you don't do that, then I'm not going to do my part. No, it's unconditional. He goes on, he says, It is love so great that it can be given to the unlovable or unappealing. In other words, it's not reliant on romantic feelings, but they can stir up romantic feelings again. And finally, he says, It is love that loves even when it is rejected. In other words, it is a forgiving love. It is a persistent, unforgiving love. And Paul says, husbands, that's on you. That's on you, not your wife. No matter what era you're in, no matter what culture you are a part of, you you call yourself a Christian husband, that's on you. And when those romantic feelings begin to dwindle, when they begin to, 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 to wane away, he says, that's when you step up, not step out. And single guys, you want to get married? That's what's expected of you. So suddenly, not so simple anymore. But remember, this is only one of two things that we need to remember. Remember? The next thing he says is, do not be harsh with him." What does that mean? The word harsh can also be translated as bitter or resentful. And usually this works out in one of two ways. Number one is unprovoked harshness, where the wife has done absolutely nothing wrong, but the husband is abusive. He's abusive in his language, he's abusive in his physicality. and, And this is an internal issue of the husband that needs to be dealt with sometimes in prison, in my opinion. The second way is through provoked harshness or bitterness. And so most scholars agree this is probably what Paul is referring to, is when a wife maybe says something, does something, or doesn't say something, or doesn't do something, that that stirs up this, this harshness or this bitterness or this resentfulness in a husband. And Paul is saying, whatever the cause, husbands, you are never, never justified to be harsh with her. Yeah, but she said this. Or, yeah, but she, you know, she didn't do this. Well, she went behind my back. He says, whatever the cause, it cannot be met with harshness. It cannot be met with resentfulness. It cannot be met with bitterness. He's not saying don't deal with it. From the Bible, we know we're to communicate Put the issue on the table, not the relationship, put the issue on the table, deal with it. He's telling us here how not to deal with it. The Christian husband or the Christian man, never mind husband, the Christian man is not to be harsh. Now I know many of us husbands are sitting here and we feel guilty because most of the time it's, it's not something that our, our wives have said or done. But maybe we just had a, a really long, hard, bad day at the office. And we get home and we, we take it out on our wives, we take it out on our kids, we take it out on the dog. And, and we know, we know it's, it's unfair for me to do this to them. And so suddenly we see these two commands and, and they're not so simple anymore. And we, we start to feel the weight of them. These are daunting, they're, they're almost impossible. So what are we to do? Paul tell, hes telling us. The anecdote is Christ-like love. Not your love. In your own strength and ability. Christ-like love. But here's what I want to do. I want to finish off by telling you a story of what Christ-like love and Christ-like submission looked like in a particular marriage and then share what I think is the secret to putting them on. So I try my best to summarize the story, but it, it goes something like this. It's about a young, a young married couple. The husband was in the military and his wife was a businesswoman. And uh, his work or his military base was, was on one side of the city and her place of work was on the other side of the city. But the story begins with a tragedy. She lost her sight due to a medical misdiagnosis. And so you can imagine uh, this is a really tough deal for a a young married couple or any married couple to try and deal with. I mean, imagine, just try and put yourself in her shoes. Imagine never being able to see her again. Never being able to see your husband again. Never being able to see the the blue stars and the, the green grass. Never being able to see your children one day. And it was because of a medical misdiagnosis. So you can imagine the anger in both of them. And the article says that she began to suffer from depression because of this. And so the husband had some serious decisions to make. A, give up on the marriage. B, let her give in to her depression. Or C, lovingly help her through this to a new way of life. And so that's exactly what he did. He slowly but surely began to encourage her, and he began to encourage her to go back to work. Her work subsequently had made some changes to accommodate her. And so eventually, the article says, eventually she said yes. Now, it doesn't go into a lot of detail, but when it says eventually she said yes, you can know that there were some really, really hard times in that marriage. Really difficult conversations. Difficult emotions to deal with. But she eventually said yes. And it tells us that he began driving her to work. And then he'd have to race all the way to the other end of the city to get to his military base. And we know that that's not ideal because as a military man, it's all about being disciplined and being there on time. But yet, he persevered in this. And then when he noticed that she had grown in her confidence, he introduced the next step of taking the bus to work like she always used to. But out of fear, she refused. And so he, he never pushed But he gently encouraged. And so they spoke some more about it and then decided that he would then take the bus with her to work. Apparently this took some months. And the article says this, I'll quote. He taught her how to rely on her other senses, uh, especially her hearing to determine where she was and and how to adapt to her new environment. He helped her befriend the bus drivers who could watch out for her and, and save her a seat. He made her laugh even on those not-so-good days when she would trip exiting the bus or or drop her briefcase. But this new routine was making him later and later for his work, and he was beginning to feel the pressure. But yet, it says, he persevered. He persevered in his love for her, and he persevered in his goal to help her to this newfound confidence in this new way of living. Eventually, Susan, that's her name, Decided she was ready to give it a go on her own. And she did well. Day after day, getting to the bus stop, getting on the bus, getting to work, and getting all the way back home. Day after day, it went well. And then one day, I'm guessing it was a new bus driver, made this, this comment. comment to her. It says, mm-hmm. on Friday morning, Susan took the bus to work as usual. As she was paying for her fare to exit the bus, the driver said, boy, I sure envy you. Susan wasn't sure if the driver was speaking to her or not. After all, who on earth would envy a blind woman who had struggled just to find the courage to live for the past year? Curious, she asked the driver, Why do you say that you envy me? The driver responded, It must feel so good to be taken care of and protected like you are. Susan had no idea what the driver was talking about and asked again, What do you mean? The driver answered, You know, every morning for the past week, a fine-looking gentleman in a military uniform has been standing across the corner watching you when you get off the bus. He makes sure you cross the street safely, and he watches you until you enter your office building. Then he blows you a kiss, gives you a little salute, and walks away. You are one lucky lady. An amazing story. A tragedy, I mean, can you just imagine what they would have gone through, what she would have gone through? I mean, like I said, the article doesn't go into great detail about that, but I'm I'm sure there must have been some dark hours of the soul. Can you imagine their hopes and dreams for their marriage disappear because of a medical misdiagnosis? But I think it's a wonderful story of a wife, despite this terrible tragedy, lovingly submitting to her husband's gentle leading. And a wonderful example of a husband who didn't give up on his wife, who didn't become harsh with her or resentful because of the extra burden placed on him, but he loved her with that verb form of a agape. He kept on loving his wife. The secret behind it all? Bible describes believers, men and women, as the bride of Christ, but it describes us as not only as spiritually blind to Jesus, our bridegroom, but dead in our sins to Him. And because of that condition, it goes on to say that we were enemies of Him. We were opposed to our bridegroom, Jesus, and yet He was not harsh with us. He was not resentful of us because of our sin, because we had rejected Him. But rather, He loved us with this unconditional agape love. And He submitted Himself to the will of His Father, taking all of our sin upon Himself so that He might have a spotless, forgiven bride. And therein lies the secret for us. When husbands and wives who have been raised with Christ, put on Christ, we are enabled to put on Christ-like love and Christ-like submission. The greatest thing, husband and wife, listen, then I'm done. The greatest thing that you can do for your husband or your wife, besides taking her out on date nights and, and, and open communication and and affection, and all of those things, the greatest thing that you can do is to fight for your devotion in the Lord. Because as you fight for your devotion in the Lord, and you put on Christ, you can put on His ability to love like Him, to submit like Him. And that will transform your marriage. Because Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough to transform your marriage. Amen. Amen. I'd love to pray for, I'd love to pray for all of you. I'd love to pray for our marriages in particular. So Father, you know better than me all of the various situations in this room. You know where all of the marriages are at, marriages that are, that are over, and the hurt, that's still lingering because of that. So I think of them first and foremost, and I pray, Holy Spirit, for your comfort. I pray for your peace for them. I pray especially that they would know your love, Jesus. You are their great, true husband, fill them with your love, please. And then I ask, please, for all of our married couples here, that first and foremost, they will be raised with you, Jesus, that you would cause them to be born again if they're not born again. And for those of us that are born again, that you would fill us, Holy Spirit. Would you enable us to put on Jesus, to put on the new nature that he's given us, the new us, the new husband, the new wife, so that we might submit and love with your Christ-likeness. That that might transform every single marriage represented in this room right now and everyone who listens to this message. I pray for our singles who desperately want to be married. I pray that they first and foremost would know that they are already married to you, Jesus. That they would know your love, that they would know your peace, your comfort, that they would know your companionship. And that in their companionship, you would prepare them for their husband one day, or for their wife one day. They, you would lead them down a godly single path until that day when they meet them. Strengthen all of us, please, for your glory and for the transformation of our